0: welcome to Kurt Vonnegut radio this is Gabe Hudson today I'm thrilled to present second installment of my conversation with Dave Eggers and if you did not hear the first installment you should go over to substack and subscribe to Kurt Vonnegut radio one of the reasons Dave and I had this conversation is to celebrate his most recent novel, The Eyes and the Impossible, which is a novel for all ages and for the ages. It is written in the first person from the perspective of a dog named Johannes. So, What you're about to hear is Dave picking up on his second lunch with Kurt Vonnegut. You will also hear Dave and I discuss the evolution of McSweeney's, various writers that we love, books. He makes some recommendations, and one of those is Daniel Gumbiner's new novel that just published today, Fire in the Canyon. I went out and got at the local bookstore here in Cape Cod and just cracked into it and was loving what I read. I'm hoping that we'll be able to get him on the show to talk to us about his book, but I just wanted to let you know today, Daniel Gumbiner's new novel Fire in the Canon has just published, and you should get that book and read it. Before I turn you over to the conversation, I want to thank Raj and Justin at McSweeney's. And without further ado, here is Dave Eggers. And then a yeah. few
1: months later, so I got to just eat with Kurt, and he was full of advice.
0: and you remember warmth any of his advice? I'm just curious.
1: Well, he was actually trying to because we had already started 826 Valencia and McSweeney's was going. And I think he was trying to tell me to not do so much outside of writing. He was worried for me there or something like that. But that was just the only piece of advice I really remember. But he seemed pointed about that. Maybe that was something that he'd gone in wanting to tell me. But otherwise, I think that People should know that he was the guy that you'd want him to be. He was every bit as generous and kind. And we asked him to do the intro to the Best American Non-Required Reading, which I used to edit. Right. And he wrote a fax back. He used to fax. (laughs) And he wrote back, Dear Believer, because he got it mixed up. He's like, I wish I could do the intro. That would have been a gas or something like that. It sounded like he didn't either... Didn't sound like he 100% meant it. Joking, like, boy, what fun that would have been. But I'm old and tired and I can't do it. Something like that. It was very him. And we've kept and framed this fax by him. and But, you know, he was exactly the guy that he was on the page. And that's not that common.
0: I don't think Um, so. In fact, that's why I named it in part this. I mean, he's always been my favorite writer for so many reasons. He saw the war and the war and then he came out of that spitting jokes and fighting on behalf of social justice issues, etc. He seems to occupy almost like his speeches are maybe as compelling as some of his fiction sometimes. And he's in this place between traditional literature and stand-up comedy. He's got one-liners. Right.
1: You know, I've been reading Lori Moore's new book. I'm only in the second chapter, but she's always been one of my favorite writers for the Absolutely. same reason. She's yeah. so funny. She yep. uh, writes Beautiful sentences, but she was not afraid to throw in one-liners every paragraph. <laughs> and they're really one-liners. Like, they're yeah. really tightly written, they're very funny, and they're not afraid to go for the laugh. And not to say she's punished for it, but I think... She should have heard a Nobel probably by now. I think that she should have... Every writer right, knows and loves her work. Yeah, And I think that some of her books have been... Well-read by the public at large, but she, yeah, national treasure, one of our best writers, every bit as funny and important as Mark Twain was in his time. Absolutely. Without Mark Twain's broad audience. This new book, the second chapter, which takes place between two brothers, one of whom is dying of cancer, is Uh one of the funniest things you'll ever read. They're at his deathbed, and it's just jokes every... But they're very mordant, that same kind of... World weary, but still kind of optimistic and uh, loving humor as Vonnegut. They're, they share a lot of DNA, although their sentence structure is very different. But Vonnegut, when he was at his best, he managed to balance the jokes just right with propulsive narrative that had a air in it too. Yep. And it was not a suffocating, overly dense kind of writing. It was very modern in terms of how clean and spare it often was. But the books really vary a lot too. I read Galapagos again a few years ago, and that's more dense. That has a different kind of yeah. structure and a kind of de- different density than Slaughterhouse-Five. Or, and then
0: Cat's Cradle, I think maybe his most artful book What do you think about Breakfast of Champions? I think that's got one of the most incredible openings where he's just dropping those truths about America and explaining how we... Basically, it was critical race theory before maybe that became a popular term. He's just basically saying, there were plenty of people living on this continent before the white sea pirates came here and (laughs) decimated the people. And those were slave owners. He says, so... The new sea pirates were white. The original indigenous people that lived here were copper colored. And the slaves that were brought here were black. Back then, color was everything. He says, but in schools, we are taught that this place didn't exist till the white sea pirates came. And actually, I was tweeting about this not too long ago. And I'm not on Twitter now because it's in zone. But I tweeted out that intro. He said, but the thing that ensured that the White Sea Pirates would succeed is that they were more greedy and mean-spirited than anyone could have possibly imagined. And Michael Chabon at that time, he tweeted, whenever I read that line, he's like, I start crying a little bit. Yeah, I remember in a different kind of a book, but Killers
1: of the Flower Moon, Yeah, which I think everyone is reading now because of the movie coming, Right, I remember reading that and thinking it can't get worse. Kind it can't get worse. We're not going to see another scene of just the most astonishing deviousness and greed and right. and cravenness on the part of the white capitalists, and then it would get worse. I think that Vonnegut was pretty early among sort of popular white writers, yeah, to just put it plainly. Yep. And again,
0: and never vary. like he just... He kept at it, and he was so obsessed, even with the damage that fossil fuels and so forth were doing to the environment, climate. I mean, he didn't use the terms, I don't believe, climate crisis, but that's what he was alluding to all the time. What's so weird, if you read his stuff now, there isn't anything that's
1: changed. It's not like he was behind on anything. Every so often, there's that thinker that gets it right and was so right like Carlin I think is like that too Yes, you know where he's right and then it never changes in terms of oh boy that fell out of fashion or he got that one really wrong same thing with Richard Pryor on the comedy level there's nothing you watch everything he's done and there's not one word that needs to be changed and so those are the real if it's truly timeless and you're like have that kind of absolute unbridled brilliance like that and a way to put it directly and plainly, it is ageless. And I think every time you pull a punch or every time you try to be too correct for that moment, then it becomes dated. And I think we're all guilty of that at one time. Oh, I can't really say that this way. And then that stuff becomes soft and squishy and not very valuable. But finding a way to put it plainly and in a timeless way. But that said, Breakfast of Champions is... Pretty low on my list, I have to say. Interesting. Like, I know. Interesting. I think it's more a collection of thoughts and. Oh, I and, think so. Uh, it's, he said it was his birthday gift to himself when he turned 50. Yep. And I think I do prefer. I loved Time Quake. If you. I do too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked it better as a ragtag, messy bag of thoughts and anecdotes and narratives. But for some reason, Breakfast of Champions to me, didn't do it as much as I mean collection of thoughts. I get it. But even time Time Quake, I thought, had more connective tissue and an artful structure.
0: I hear what you're saying. That references Champions, that's the first one I read. My teacher, Miss Diacon, gave it to me on the first or second day of seventh grade because we had to stand up and say what we wanted to be. I said, I wanted to be a writer. And she said, Oh, this is the greatest writer. He's gonna you're gonna change the way you look at the world. And oh. I had just never heard that kind of truth telling, just someone telling the absolute truth in yeah. an unvarnished way. It just pierced my dome. Yeah. That's what's so strange. And I
1: don't think anyone does it to this day, especially not in fiction. Just say things. <laughs> Everything has to be so couched. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. demonstrated. And the show don't tell all these what ends up being very limiting maxims that guide us or restrain us. But He's still the only guy that I can think of that just said things. This is right, this is wrong. In the middle of a novel, you're like, God damn it, I like that. And the directness is why readers of basically every age can still come to him. And you know what I read recently was Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Co- Cuckoo's Nest, which shares a little bit of the mordant humor, but is a beautiful book. It just gets overshadowed by the film. Same with Being There, the Jersey right. Kaczynski book. But both of those are great for somebody that loves Vonnegut, but wants whatever's next. I completely um, agree. And One Flew of the Caucasus* is told from the point of view of the chief. I don't know if you remember I,
0: this. I, I didn't I, know that. I don't know if I remember that. I do remember it was a very cool... Was it first-person present tense? Yeah. That's... In, I, I think present, but he's
1: sitting there observing everything and right. pretending to be mute because it's just less trouble. Wow. But he's the narrator, so he sees all, knows all, and says nothing until late in the game out loud to the Nicholson character McCaffrey or... Anyway, but it's really lyrical... Really funny, very vivid, and it deserves more attention as a standalone, iconic book. I don't know what the readership is these days for that book, but I don't know of anything like it. And it's just so rare now to find that combination of a very dark topic, because, you know, they're giving lobotomies left and right. and Oh my gosh, yes. Um, but with... Very well-earned humor hmm. throughout. and yeah, premium humor. Uh, I guess there are people doing it now. I don't know who exactly. Way. There must be people.
0: I don't know if the industry, whatever's going on with publishing, I'm not sure if it might prioritize or cherish those same sort of aesthetic gestures as maybe in the 60s or early 70s when Kesey dropped that. You know the-
1: who's a little bit of an heir to it is Percival Everett, I think. And oh, yes. There. He's about yeah. to have a big moment with that American fiction, the Jeffrey Wright movie. based right. on one of his books, and he just sent me his new book, which is called James, and it's about Jim from Huckleberry Finn, told oh, from my his gosh. point
0: of view. I He's think- tailor-made to write that book. I yeah. love Percival. He was on a judging committee for something I got early And I met him and he was just always so cool. And he's like, Gabe, just come. Because I think he went to Brown and I did the MFA there. And he was like, come visit me on my ranch anytime. And I was like, this guy's amazing. Yeah, I think he's
1: the guy that is a little bit of an heir to um, those 60s writers that could, could mix and be really fearless about theme and premise that's just bonkers and he makes yes. it work just through sheer force of will. I miss those kinds of things where it's okay, here's the premise, I would gravitate to that if it's done well. I used to say that George Saunders was the heir to Vonnegut, which I think he still is. He's that moral voice that you trust and
0: I learned it. I would put you in there. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or flatter you, but I watched you for 25 plus years and read you. I would absolutely put you in that same category you well have... i think when
1: saunders was doing his thing remember we published him early on yep and issue number and, four yeah and we were civil war land bad decline was Woo! like everybody's touchstone oh my god that book and then i wrote some blurb mentioning twain and vonnegut and and then yep. he wrote sea oak and wrote all these great stories and then, Sutton, and then finally after that people caught on, he's not only brilliant, but so accessible too. so warm. It's not some cold, aloof, experimental fiction.
0: It's really direct and and accessible. And you could cry or get a lump in your throat or your eyes would get wet. He has this way. I'm saying what you already know, but the way he ends his stories, the way he sticks those, it's like this just astonishing humor was just to soften you up so that he could break your heart with yeah. this aria at the end. And it, it taught me so much. I mean, he he came to Brown to visit. Ben Marcus invited him as a professor yeah. when he was at Syracuse, and he taught me this thing. I, I actually wrote about it and podcasted about it. It's the heart is in conflict with itself. And that's this revolutionary idea because your character then, because we're all always stuck at least between two conflicting impulses, right? Like we just are. And so if your character sort of tacking back and forth and honoring those conflicting impulses, you get this very dynamic, alive, human narrative and you don't know what's going to happen and you release your character and you let them show you and it can surprise you as well as the reader, how it all goes. My daughter was assigned... Jenny Egan's
1: Goon Squad, and just read it, and it just slayed her. I think it was the first time my daughter, who's 17, read something that she loved that much, that she had been assigned. You know when that, she reads all of the stuff that's assigned, and she's read other books on her own and everything, but then there's that one sweet spot where you get assigned it, it's taught by a great teacher, and it hits you personally. There's that ending to uh, Goon Squad and, and the power before it. That everything, you could just see my daughter walking around in a daze like that, when you stick the landing and everything comes together. And it's been a while since I read that, but I remember feeling that same way, how you're describing it. And that book's been around the house. I've just been seeing her sort of, the amount that she has left to read thinning every day. And now she's said, I'm so sad that there's no more of that to read, you know, when she's just in that space where she just wants the book to go on and you really never get it again because there's, you know, Jenny is so dynamic. She changes. Yeah, dynamic. And she really does different things each time pretty drastically. Was it the, the book in the New York Harbor that was after that? Anyway, about the mob and then the diving under the ship. Anyway, I don't know what was next, but it was really different. And I think that It's a funny thing because as writers, you understand, as readers, we understand what it's like to want more of that voice. And Vonnegut was pretty consistent. So you always got Vonnegut's voice. But then, from my perspective, I really want to pivot hard after everything. You never want to do the same thing in a row. I might revisit something 20 years later, but I don't know what that is, but it's a certain sort of restlessness or trying something new. or I, I definitely don't want to go back.
0: I mean, really from the jump, your aesthetic was so wide that you actually, as an editor, introduced a lot of us to different kinds of cool graphic novelist types or this kind of writer. You widened the umbrella for us, for Gen X, and we saw all this talent. And then you would do those science books that had a Monty Python vibe. But then no. you would do... Haggis on Way books. And then you do serious reportage. You might be the most sort of dexterous writer I can think of because you love jokes. I knew you loved Vonnegut. You loved drawings. You're a great artist. Was Vonnegut at all an inspiration for you in doing your drawings in any way or no? No, I mean, no offense to that. He's not that but great. I like was a
1: pretty crude, self taught doodler. I went to art school. I yeah. was classically trained. It's one of those things where I'm actually trying to write about it. But I remember being an art student and thinking, I really hope that I don't have to repeat myself. And I would look at some people whose art I love. Looked at Roy Lichtenstein, right? Her work, it really holds up. I really enjoy it. But I think for 45, 50 years, he did the same stuff, the Bende Dots. And I thought, man, I, and he really explored the theme and he turned it out, but I don't know, Is that what you want to, could you do it for 50 years? It's yeah. tough to think about. And so and then I started gravitating to the artists like Gerhard Richter or right. a handful of other people that really did different, somehow carved out a space for themselves where they could do very different things each time. I was in the Richter room at the SF MOMA a few weeks ago and I'm thinking, Oh, you know, if it does hold together, yeah, man, it's different. And I'm so grateful to see somebody do that because that was the thing about the art world that always bothered me was the way that the market works is that if you hit on something that buyers want and critics appreciate. And you just got to repeat yourself for the rest right. of your life. Right. That's better than digging ditches, but it's still... It's digging uh, some kind of ditch. I don't know. We're all lucky if we get to do something we enjoy, but it is a strange gilded cage that you can end up in. Yep. That is if you feel constrained. If you find joy in doing slight variations on the same thing right, for 50 years, and then... All power to you, because I do think that it's possible to find R- that to be fun. Right.
0: I've watched you from your debut with your memoir, a Heartbreaking Word, and then I remember everybody was like, what's the next book going to be? And I'm sorry, the, the title eludes me, but I've read it several times, Traveling the Globe. No, you know what it was, Gabe? It was about the art world.
1: It was a small book for HarperCollins called When Elephants Paint. And it was a collaboration with Komar and Melamed who did yes. the cover. And and I went on this trip with them to Thailand where they were teaching <laughs> unemployed elephants Why? to paint abstract expressionist canvases as sort of a gag. And it was really up my alley because I was frustrated with so much of the art world. And they were always doing send-ups of the art world. And right. so it was a photo book that was kind of a parody, but also it looked like a real art book full of beautiful photos right. of elephants painting in the jungle. And I really had to get something done to shake off any, I don't guess, any expectations and just right. do very silly and to say, no, I'm not going to do
0: this again yeah. and again. <laughs> do you have three books you could recommend for our listeners? I'll say first. The new Laurie Moore,
1: I am homeless if this is not my home, I think it's called. I'm really at that age where I'm actually had a lot of time to read and I read in the morning. And so I can't believe because I was always a pretty slow reader, but now I'm able to read two, three books a week and I forget wow. what I read yeah, yeah. pretty quickly. Let's turn everyone on to Percival Everett's new book that I yes. think comes out imminently. Yep, And then Jasmine Ward has a new book that I'm excited about because I got to be on the National Book C- Committee when we gave her the second National Book Award. She's amazing. Just gorgeous sentences. I cannot believe how beautiful and lyrical and lush her sentences are. And then I'm nearby my buddy, Daniel Gumbiner, the editor of The Believer, and he... Just fire in the canyon. going to try book, to interview man.
0: Yeah, you should. Y- he's yeah. next to me. He's next to you right now? Yeah, we're in the office. Already. Tell him I owe him an email and we yeah. were corresponding about that. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, he wrote a book about fire
1: country and the wildfires here in Northern California, and he's from here. And talk about a book with a, well, really bad pun, but it's a slow burn, and it has right. a really stunning ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's one of those really bold endings that you do not see coming, and you can't cheat yourself and get to, but it's the perfect ending where, you know, those films or movies where you build toward, you don't see it coming at all, but it, and right. it's very sudden and you think, oh my God, it couldn't end any other way, even though it's very jarring
0: and kind of upsetting. That's the most beautiful thing where you couldn't anticipate it. But then when it happens, it's like, oh,
1: that's so Inevitable. true. And he has been slowly building toward it the whole time. And he just taps the glass and the whole thing shatters. And I've known Daniel since he was a student of mine, uh, here in this building in Valencia when he was in high school. Yeah. Wow. He was in the best American non-required reading. Wow.
0: So cool. And I loved his debut, which oh, was you guys so published. Yeah.
1: I, it actually was one of the reasons why I started learning how to sail and I work on a boat now because partly because he's reminded a, us all we live on a bay. Yeah. There's the water there. So he's a great guy, but I'll wow. tell him. Yeah, please
0: do. I have been interviewing so much. I got a little out ahead of my skis and a little behind on my emails. But I think his book comes out, is it October 3rd, maybe? Do we know? That sounds right.
1: And also on October 3rd is Michael Lewis's book about Sam Bankman-Fried, the FTX guy. I love uh, Michael Lewis. Yeah, he's been there since day one. So that book will be everywhere.
0: I'd love to talk to him. He actually said, Dave, I'm sure you've heard about this, but... He came on that podcast, SmartList. I don't know if you've heard of it. I heard about this. He yeah. said the most incredibly moving things. I cried when I heard him talking about his loss of his daughter and what you did, the way you pulled your car up in front of his house with a bunch of food. And I think maybe you went on the porch, as I recall the description. He said, I had never dealt with that grief. I didn't know what to do. And Dave is just like, I'm gonna be right here, and I'm gonna be in that car for the next 24 hours or something. And I'm here. And then he says, in the end, this is what I learned from Dave. This is what you do for other people. It is the most welcome, heartfelt, compassionate thing you can do is just to show up and just be present and be patient. It was is it incredible. It's incredibly hear him talk about it. People did that
1: when my parents uh, were sick and member, neighbors, and just, it was always, never knew who it was going to be, really. Right. But we had an old family friend that moved into our basement and lived there for many weeks near the end. It was like, hadn't seen her in years. Actually, we knew her from Cape Cod. There she was. And it was just, okay, another adult, another person to help feed us, to help answer phone calls, whatever it was, run an errand. And so I learned that from her. Her name was Mrs. Deneen, and I don't remember her first name, but. She taught me that.
0: I learned it from listening to you just now and then also from Michael Lewis when he was describing it because it was very compelling what he said. And he also had his own wisdom about how to process grief and loss and what he had learned. It was really Mm -hmm. a shattering episode, but I was very touched to hear your name invoked like that. Well, it's good to in talking about friendship. We're going on 25 years, you and me, my friend. So good to talk to you, my friend. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. So that was amazing, right? Now is when you go to mcsweenies.net, net or bookshop to buy Dave's fabulous new novel, The Eyes and the Impossible. I have included links in the show notes. Also, Dave mentioned, but it didn't get recorded as clearly, some of the forthcoming editions that McSweeney's has coming out towards the end of the year. As he described, it, sort of a crescendo of fireworks. One of them is the newest issue of McSweeney's, which has been edited by brian evanson it's a whore he also said they have an issue coming out with a great play by jeff newman he said that they have a lunchbox designed by art spiegelman and then he said at the beginning of the year eli horowitz has edited an issue where he's found 10 unpublished writers and Dave said that it is really a return to their roots as McSweeney's and that the stories span the globe everywhere from Iceland to Nigeria to Omaha so if you're interested definitely go to McSweeney's.net if you're not already signed up for this podcast and newsletter go to Substack and sign up for Kurt Vonnegut Radio. Stay safe out there, people. And I'll see you next time. Peace.